0: Isaiah 10 is a prophecy chapter. I pray that you will not miss this series. We go through Isaiah. We're going to be spending a good part of this year in Isaiah. Some chapters I'll amalgamate together. I'll I'll consolidate them because it just goes in context. Others I may just separate it. And other chapters I may preach one or two messages, maybe three messages out of them. I think we get to Isaiah chapter 40. I might preach three different messages out of that. But, But Isaiah 10, like most of Isaiah, is a prophecy chapter. And it tells us about things to come, prophecies about things to come. Now, some of these prophecies, we'll see, have been fulfilled. And some of them are still to be fulfilled. And we'll get more to that. And, and we'll see that Isaiah and the book of Revelation, as we, as we um, get to Revelation, we start in the prophecy section there about the tribulation. We'll see that they'll dovetail very well together. And, and you really want to know what's going to happen in the future. You really want to know what God has already told us. By the way, we can rejoice as Christians because we know how it's all going to end because we know God's in control. Amen? And we know God's in control. We just all, and God tells us how it's all going to unfold and what's going to happen here. And you, you want to be knowledgeable about those things. And we're going to try to do our best during these next several months to unfold these things through prophecy. Now remember, Ahaz is the king of Judah. He was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned for 16 years. I think as Isaiah chapter 10 is written, he's probably, he's probably right around that 15th, 16th year of his reign. His son Hezekiah would follow him and succeed him. Now Hezekiah was a good king, but Ahaz was not a good king. If you read Second uh, Kings 16 and Second Chronicles 28, you read about the exploits of King Ahaz, and they were not very good. You read about his kingdom, the things he did they were not very good. And so, as I mentioned, the king of Assyria was raised up as God's instrument of judgment against Israel and Syria, and Judah and King Ahaz were basically to step back and not get in the way. But Ahaz would not put his trust in the Lord. He said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And so he goes to the king of Assyria. He goes up to the city of Nineveh. And he makes an alliance with him. And he brings this gold and the silver. He strips out of the temple of God the gold and the silver. And he takes it up there to Nineveh. And he says, I want to make an alliance. I want to hire you as a mercenary. I want to hire you to serve me. I want to hire you to fight for me. And so the king of Assyria was not one to back down from money to be uh, a paid-for-hire servant, so he did so. But it backfired on his hands because later on, this king of Assyria would fight with him and turn against him. And you'll notice here, if you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 28, it might be in your notes here, verses 20-21. We're given the name of the king of Assyria this time. And his name we find in verse 20 there, 2 Chronicles 28, is Tilgath Pilnesar. Tilgath Pelnesar, the king of Assyria, the Bible says he came unto king Ahaz and distressed him but strengthen him not. Now he had already taken the gold and the silver that was given him, but he says I'm not going to be your paid for hire. I'm not here to strengthen you. I'm going to take it. I'm going to fight Israel. I'm going to take Syria, but I'm going to fight you as well there too. Just a reminder to us, it doesn't pay to shake hands with the devil. Amen? It doesn't pay to compromise in that way there. And in verse 21, the Bible says, for Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord, and out of the house of the king and of the princes, and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. He backfired him. Spent all this money to hire this guy and it didn't pay off for him. Well, the king of Assyria starts to get pretty, the Bible describes him as being very stout hearted and very proud and very arrogant. I talked about that last week. He was a very conceited man. In Isaiah chapter 10, just for sake of time, in verses 5 to 9, the, he, God, God describes the king of Assyria, that God, how God raised him up. Notice in verse 5, he says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. He says, I raised you up to be my instrument. And he says here, he said, uh, and he said, verse 6, I will send him against a hypocritical nation. That's what he was calling Israel. He called them a hypocritical nation. By the way, God knows when we're hypocritical. God knows we're, we're, we're putting on a feigned face and, and we're not what we really should be. And he says, I will send him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath. Will I give him a charge to take Take the spoil and take the prey. And to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But then verses 7 and 9. This king of Assyria is just all puffed up. He's full of himself. And he's very arrogant and conceited. And he takes credit for all these things. He said, well look at all the cities I've conquered along the way. And look what I've done. And he said here something very interesting. Verse 10. As my hand has fought, that found the kingdoms of the idols. And whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria and others. He said, here are two kingdoms. Here are two cities. Jerusalem was the capital of the, of the southern nation, uh, the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, which was Israel. And he says, I went to this place, these two cities, where there should have been evidence of the worship of God, but instead there's the abundance of these idols that they were worshipping. He said, I went there. And he says, it's amazing. These people vow and testify. They worship the God of heaven. They say there's only one God. And they say there's only one God they serve. But yet look at their trees and their forests and their groves and their hillsides. And in every house, there's all these groves and all these idols that they worship there. And the king, the king of Assyria sees this in verse 10. He says, As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem, and Judea and, and, and Samaria, he said in verse 11, Shall I not, as I have done unto Samarian idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? And God was saying here, he's reversing it. He says, okay. He said, I brought judgment upon all these other nations. I brought judgment upon these idol-worshipping nations. But he said... There's still one more that needs to be dealt with. And he said, That nation is Judah and the capital of Jerusalem, their capital, Jerusalem, and King Ahaz. And God was saying, I've raised up king, this king of Assyria as my instrument of judgment. In verse 17, as this king is boasting of himself, in verse 16, 17, God says, Okay, I've had enough of your boasting. I've had enough of you taking credit for that which I gave you the power to do. And so he said, therefore, in verse 16, I will send among his fat ones leanest. In other words, he's saying, they're, they're, just, they're, just, uh, they're just reveling and partying in all that they've captured and taken and uh, all the wealth they've stolen. And, they, and the description God was using wasn't doing it in a derogatory way. He's saying they've just made themselves as what he calls fat ones. In other words, they, they just think that they're just prosperous and, and uh, that nobody can touch them. He says, I'm going to send leanness to you, in verse 16. And he, then he made a statement. He says, under his glory he shall kindle a a burning, like the burning of a fire. God says, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be a light and a flame against Assyria. He says, Assyria, your judgment's coming. What we're reading about this morning is about God's judgment on Assyria. We're reading about what God says, you know what, I raised you up to serve me. Because I had a people that, were, that needed to be chastened. And now you've taken credit and glory for this. And God makes this remarkable statement. He said in verse 17, this flame and this fire. Would you notice this? He says the light of Israel shall be for a fire. And his holy one for a flame. And the best image I can give you about this. If you think back here because this is very real to us. As you think about the California wildfire problems we've had for the last two or three years, not very far from us, one hour from here, in the Napa Sonoma areas, and how a transformer malfunctioned, it set an area on fire, and one day thousands, tens of thousands of acres burned away. That's real to us, and it says here in verse seventeen. God's that flame. God is that flame. That's why the Bible says we need to be careful because of, of, of God, that he's, that God, that one of the pictures of God in judgment is, is a fire. And it says here in verse 17, and this flame, would you notice this? It shall burn and devour, and he describes Assyria as thorns and briars, in one day. God said, listen, I, I allowed you to rise up over the course of weeks, months, and years. But in one day, I'm gonna deal with you. What a concept about the thought of one day. July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the surface of the moon. He coined that phrase, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. One day that made a difference. November 5th, 1971, those of you who are electronics people remember this. All the headlines read, Announcing a new era of integrated electronics. Intel had introduced the very first microchip. Hence, we know how that's all unfolded now. One day that has made a difference in everything we do. September 11th, 2001, the day of a major terrorist attack on America. One day that changed our nation and our world. Just one day. December 26, 2004. We had church that day. Day after Christmas. A powerful tsunami powered its way through countries bordering the Indian Ocean. 200,000 people were killed in the path of that terrible tsunami. It was one day that changed a landscape, the lives of millions of people. God said in verse 17 that he would devour and burn the thorns and briars in one day. For just a few minutes, I'd like us to consider in this message the truth, the theology, the fundamental of one day. One day. One day. God said in one day he would deal with this country. In one day... Things could go upside down, or things could be upside t- turned around the right way. I want you to consider, first of all, with me this morning, one day a reckoning. One day a reckoning. And in our context this morning, God pronounced to the prophet Isaiah, to the king of Assyria, that he would burn and devour their thorns and briars in one day. I want to testify to you this morning, God did do that. We have the record of this in Isaiah 37 and 38. God did do that, but it was not during King Ahaz's day. It happened, if you would with me, we want to fast forward 14 years from when this happened. Because when King Ahaz died, his son Hezekiah came to the throne at the age of 25. King Hezekiah was a good king for those first 14 years. In fact, the very first week he became king, He reopened the house of God that Ahaz had boarded up, and he took some people, and within a two-week period of time, he cleaned out literally all the filth and the junk and the desecration that happened in the temple of God. Hezekiah was a good king, but the threat of Assyria was still there. It's not Tilgath-Pilnesar that's king. It is now a man by the name of Sennacherib who's king of Assyria. King Hezekiah is 39 years old. It's 14 years later from this pronouncement now that the king of Assyria now has taken his armies and assembled themselves around the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city on a hill. When Assyria had bordered around there, we read this over in Isaiah 37, I don't have time for us to read all of that this morning. As he bordered around there, part of the water supply had been cut off. And they knew that if they stayed around encircling Jerusalem long enough, because down below Jerusalem were all the village cities, and they would have the towns, and the places where their vineyards were, and they'd have the places where where they would grow their crops and things of that nature, and so a lot of times the the farmers and people down below from the city would grow all those things, and they 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 would transport it up to the city of Jerusalem for all those things, but... A lot of these things have been cut off and Assyria had taken captive uh, quite a few of the cities and places there. So Jerusalem was not in a very good position at that moment of time. Hezekiah was king and we read the story there when the king of Assyria got there that he sent uh, this king by the name of Sennacherib. He sent his captain by the name of Rapshaka over there to to basically taunt King Hezekiah and tell him some things. And I want you to go there with me in the scriptures for just a minute. And I want you to notice, if you want, Isaiah chapter 37, please. Isaiah chapter 37. And I, I want us to read a few verses here. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to read verse th- chapter, chapter 37, a few verses. And so they've encircled the city. And their water supply is affected. Their food supply is affected. And we know from the scriptures that there's 185,000 soldiers, Assyrian soldiers that have circled the city. Now, if you haven't figured this out yet, 185,000 soldiers, that's a big army, amen? That's, that's a large brigade. That is a large number of soldiers there. And uh, Rav Shackle, who was the captain, it was uh, uh, very arrogant, just like his king, who had spent his time conquering city and villages and towns. And so they, they said, I'm going to send a message to, to King Hezekiah. And a couple of his men got the message, and they brought word to Isaiah... And uh, they, they brought word to, to, uh, to Isaiah. And Isaiah went back to him, to Hezekiah. He says, well, I don't want you to worry. They're not going to bother you. They're not going to mess with you. But they were still scared. Isaiah gives this message of cover and assurance. And he says, I'm going to give you protection. So notice he, if you went in chapter 37, verse 33, how God speaks, to the, speaks about this situation and what God said he'll do. He said, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He said, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into the city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city, to save it for my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And it says, Then the angel of the Lord went forth, and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 104 hundred and 5,000, and when they rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Now, let's stop for me to talk about what happened here. A message comes to Hezekiah. Through two of his men, and they're all shaking. And they communicated Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah the prophet comes and he tells Hezekiah. And Hezekiah believes it, but he's still shaking. And so now a letter's come up, because God had given a diversion, and so Rav had to leave for a period of time, and they left some soldiers there, but he had to leave for a period of time to help his king fight another battle. And while it was happening, this letter was sent up to to King Hezekiah, with with those in the preceding verses, and this letter basically told him, don't trust in your God, and don't listen to what Hezekiah says, and and your God will not protect you. And by the way, that's what the devil does when you have big trouble and difficulties. He's going to whisper in your mind and plant seeds of doubt in your mind and unbelief that God doesn't love you and God doesn't care and God's not involved and I want to testify to you this morning God does love you and God does care and God is concerned about your situation and so they, they were getting this and Hezekiah takes this letter and if I could use my handkerchief to demonstrate this he took the letter because Isaiah had already given the word and God had already told him to Isaiah he said don't you worry I'm not, they're not going to bother you they're not going to mess with you but he takes the letter this is preceding this verses we just read and he goes inside the temple and he, and he lays it out and he gets on his knees, and he prays to God, and one of the greatest prayers of the Bible is recorded there in Isaiah 37, 38, about what he prayed for, asking God to intervene, and he didn't have to pray the prayer, because God already had told him he would take care of this, but God knows our heart, and God knows you and I are human, and God knows you and I have fears. Pastor Howell talked about fears, and we must be very careful not to give in to our fears, but, and, and Hezekiah was just looking, because he looked out his palace, and he'd seen those eight hundred eighty-five thousand soldiers that had encircled that city, and he was intimidated by it. You know what I mean by this. When you see something that looks very frightening. It gets the best of you. And when you hear news that you don't have an answer for, it gets the best of you. You can imagine King Hezekiah. He's thinking, we're we're trapped. We're encircled by 185,000. There's no way out. And our food supply is getting cut off. And A water supply is getting cut off, and what are we going to do? And he and he gets before God, he lays it out there, and he says, God, you've got to do something for us. And he says, You're the great God of heaven, and we need to do something. And he puts it down in there. And I just want to encourage you by by just parking on this for just a minute. Maybe, maybe you're gonna be someone in the days to come that someone's gonna give you something that's gonna sound very bad. You might get an email message that's gonna be very bad, or a letter in the mail that might be very bad. Or you might be an unfortunate person that might be served a lawsuit, or you might be someone that's been given something that is very terrible, and you read this thing, and it makes your hair. Stand up on the back of your neck and you're shivering and wondering what's going on here, and you've got this letter that seems threatening, or maybe you've got a letter from a doctor that doesn't seem very good, or news that's very bad, and you don't have the answers for what's going on. You don't know how you're gonna pay off that debt, and you don't know what you're gonna do about this sickness, and you don't know what you're gonna do about the situation, and you don't really know what the future holds, and you're wondering, God, do you care? I would encourage you to do like Hezekiah did. I've done this many times, where you take that piece of paper and you take that thing and you put it on the floor and you lay it out. You say, God, I've got to have your power. And God, I've got to have you to work in my life. My wife first got diagnosed with cancer back in, back, back uh, several years ago. I remember we had planned to go away for time. And I'll be honest with you, I was, I was a nervous wreck back in that time. I, hadn't, I just was having a difficult time just learning how to trust God. But I didn't show that at the pulpit or anything like that. And I remember as we were just waiting for her to have her surgery and things of that nature, I was just, just filled with a lot of anxiety about what was going on. And uh, we, we had this place we stayed at for the very first time. And, and we, I tried the most not to show that I was just anxious and very upset. But literally I couldn't sleep through the night and uh, most nights. And it was about, I still remember it was a Thursday night. And I just said, I've had it. I just, I can't have any more of these sleepless nights and I took my Bible and, and we were in a room and I had nowhere private I could go no what I would call a prayer closet and I, and I took my Bible and this sheet of paper on some things I wrote some notes on and I remember I went into the restroom and I closed the toilet lid and I went by the bathtub and it was pure pitch dark there and I stubbed my toes several times with different things and, and I put it down on the floor there and it was about 3.30 in the morning and I got down on my face before God and I cried out to God kind of like Hezekiah and I, and I repeated the prayer of Hezekiah I said, God, you, you got to do something for my wife and I that I don't understand here because I, I just don't know I just I look at the doctors and the clinical, the clinical information they're giving me is making me scared and anxious and things of that nature. I'm not sure what to do, and I laid it down, and my wife was calm. She said, honey, we're going to just trust God, and I said, no, we're going to trust God, but I feel like as your husband, and as a pastor, and and if nothing else, just as your husband, I feel like I just need God to do something here, and I laid it down on the floor, and I got on my face before God, and I remember I just kept on praying. I just was talking to God for a long period of time, and I'll be honest with you, 3.30 went by, 4.30 went by, 5.30 went by, 6.30 went by, and 7.30, I didn't even realized what time it was and i thought uh, maybe i should just get up and just take a break here because my knees were hurting a little bit from being down there on the on the floor and i realized the sun had come up and i looked at the clock it was seven thirty. let me tell you something right around 7 30 i got off my knees i knew god was going to do something there i knew god was going to do something there and i've been in that place many times hezekiah got on his face before god god you got to do something God told him here, look at these verses again. He shall not come into this city. He won't even shoot an arrow there. He's not going to even hold a shield up in front of you or cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city. God said, "I will defend the city." Look at that verse 36. Hezekiah had done his praying. God has spoken His word. God sent an angel that night, as God has done many times before. Those Assyrians, 185,000. God counted the number, gave it right there. That encircled the city Jerusalem that night, that night, that one day, God defeated them. And notice how God defeated them. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. I want you to fathom me for just a minute. Hezekiah didn't have him to gird his sword on. His men on the wall did not have to shoot a barrel. They didn't have to fight the battle. God fought for them. Listen, let God fight your battles. Amen. One day, one day, there was a reckoning. A reckoning means a judgment, a work of God. A reckoning means a time of accountability. A time of judgment. God prophesied in Isaiah chapter 10 that he'd come like a burning fire that would devour the thorns and briars in one day. And one day God reckoned with the Assyrian army. He took 185,000 out on one day. Let me tell you something this morning. There is a reckoning one day much larger than this is going to happen. There is a reckoning in the Bible, a time of judgment much bigger than that. In Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 15, that is called the great white throne judgment. It's going to happen. It's on the calendar. God already has his calendar. We don't know the date, but it's going to come. It's going to happen. On one day, all the unsaved will stand before God. Who is an unsaved person? An unsaved person is an individual who's never repented of their sins and received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Do you understand what's going to happen this morning? A per, an unsaved person dies without their sins forgiven. They die unrepentant, unforgiven. You've already been. You're all unsaved people. Are, are already under the condemnation of God. We are already declared guilty before God. When we die in this life, we immediately go to a place called hell. But hell is not the end. Hell is not annihilation, as some would teach. It is not annihilation. Hell is perpetual torment. But the Bible tells us that the judgment still has not happened. The great judgment will happen for all the unsaved throughout all of eternity. For every unsaved person, beginning, beginning at the, when God first made Adam, and I believe that very first person that will be judged on that will be his son Cain. Because Cain never repented of his sins. He did not put his faith and trust in the shed blood of an innocent victim for his sins. I believe Cain will be among those who will be judged at that great white throne judgment. The Bible tells us in Revelation 20, the dead, small and great, shall stand before God. And the one thing God is going to look at, he's going to replay out of the books that he has, everything we did in our life. And we're, some of us who are very smug are going to say, well, God will see that I did my good works and that I did go to church and maybe I was baptized and maybe I did these things. God's going to rehearse all those things, but God's going to help us to see every single time an opportunity was given to repent of our sins and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved and how that individual who didn't repent and didn't call on the Lord rejected that opportunity, and there the great white throne judgment. the Bible says that another book was opened, which is the book of life. And whosoever was not found written in that book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire, where hell and death will be cast. And every unsaved person will stand before God for the final time to give a testimony, an account of the fact that they did not repent, they did not call the Lord a Savior. I believe it's at that point in time, they will bow on their knees and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at that moment of time, they'll be cast into that lake of fire to burn forever and forever and forever. That is one day. That is a one day of reckoning that will happen for every unsaved person. You see, on that one day, there is no hiding. On that one day, there are no excuses. There is no debating. There is no bargaining with God. On that one day, there is no escape. On that one day, there is no boasting. On that one day, there's no one going to be shaking their puny fists in the face of an almighty God. On that one day, every unsaved person will be declared guilty and condemned to spend all of eternity in the lake of fire. That's why the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, 27, out of love, out of mercy, out of concern of a God who loves our souls, he says this, As it is appointed to men once to die, after this is the judgment. Go back with me in Isaiah chapter 10, and would you notice how God describes this judgment, this reckoning that he'll do against the king of Assyria. In, in Isaiah chapter 10, I'll read verse 17 again, then I want you to read verse 18 with me. He says, and the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Notice this. And shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. They shall be as when a standard bearer, one who is sick and pining away, fainteth. One day of reckoning. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus as your savior? Have you repented of your sins and called on the name of the Lord to save you? My friend, with all that I can, I urge you this morning, if you're not saved, to get saved today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't want to be someone that could die and spend all of eternity in hell. I urge you this morning, there is a day of reckoning. That one day's coming. Do not wait and put off to tomorrow. Today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. One day. A but notice number two. Would you notice a second time? One day, a redemption. One day, a redemption. The day of redemption was the day Jesus died for every sinner. Glory to God. The day of redemption was the day our sins, my sins, your sins, our sins were paid in full by the shed blood of Jesus Christ the day of redemption was when Jesus died for the sin for the all sinners he died for every one of us. He died for our sins. I want you to consider with me the events that unfolded on that one day. Would you notice on that one day there was a scattering. On that day Jesus had prepared his disciples that he was going to be crucified and that he would die, and that he would suffer. And three days later he would rise again from the dead. But on that day was a very lonely day for Jesus. On that day Jesus, Judas, betrayed him. On that day Peter denied him. On that day, nine of the other men went into hiding. Only John was there at the crucifixion. It was a day of scattering. Jesus had been abandoned by those who had pledged their lives and said they would stand for him. They had scattered away. It was a day of loneliness for our Lord Jesus Christ. Even before he went to the cross, all of them had scattered like scared chickens. They went away there. It was a day of scattering. But notice, secondly, it was a day of scorning. On that day, that same crowd that cheered Jesus and put their clothing on the floor and they on that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That same crowd was the same one jeering him. They were the same ones that were scorting him. They said, give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. Give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. Scorting is when hurtful things and critical things are said. My friend, this morning, all of us must ask God to give us special grace that we watch our mouths and watch our lips and be careful of what we say and how we say it. The Bible says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. We must be very careful, if we're not, that we Can be very sharp and very critical and hurtful with our words. And on that day, Jesus, there were some terrible things that those sinners said. Those sinners who never repented of their sins at the great white throne, they'll face and remember that day at the great white throne those terrible things they said about Jesus. They scorned his deity. They blasphemed who he was. They scorned the fact that he was the perfect son of God. They scorned the fact that he was the king of the Jews. They scorned the fact that he died for the sins of all the world. The Bible says he was reviled and reviled not again. It was a a day of scattering. It was a day of scorning. I wonder this morning as we assemble here for worship, did you say something good to the Lord today? Did you say thank you, Jesus, for a good day? Did you say thank you, Jesus, for saving me? Did you say praise Jesus for giving me life? Did you praise the Lord for giving your salvation? Did you praise him for the songs we sang today? Were you praising when you are singing or just going through the motions? Listen, there was a day when all these people scorned him. And I'm going to tell you this morning, brother and sister Christ, when we get those, those mood swings that we have, And we start complaining, and we get critical, and we say things we should not. Oh, listen, our Savior is hurt by those things. He's grieved by those things. You say, Pastor Fong, how do you know he's grieved? Because the Bible tells us, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And we've grieved the Spirit of God when critical things and bad things come out of our mouth. They scorned our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, it wasn't just the scattering, and it wasn't just the scorning. Would you consider, on that day of redemption, there was suffering. Our Savior suffered. Now, I don't know about you, but we've got some families in our church that are suffering. Suffering right now. When I say suffering, they wake up in the morning and they go to bed at night with these, with literally. Just thinking that they're living through a living nightmare. They're waking up wondering, could this really be happening to me? They're pitching themselves wondering, could this really be happening? Their family members who are struggling right now, wondering how, how is this all going to come about and what we're going to do. And I'm going to tell you this morning, the greatest amount of suffering any of us that have in this room, and I want to tell you this morning, we are sympathetic to everybody's suffering. But the greatest suffering you and I will ever go through does not compare to the suffering Jesus Christ went through. He suffered for you and I. He suffered things. Let me tell you some things he suffered. He suffered terrible things at the hands of his accusers. Can you imagine those Roman soldiers who manhandled our Jesus? And I'm going to tell you, Jesus was meek, but he was not a wimp. Jesus was a man's man. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus walked many miles. Jesus could endure some things. He was a man's man, but he was manhandled by those soldiers. They pulled the hair out of his beard. They pulled the beard, the hair on his face, and ripped it out they slapped him across the face to the point where he was disfigured how do we know that? Isaiah tells us that Isaiah tells us he was so disfigured they couldn't even recognize that he was a man he was despised and rejected of men I mean on that day nobody was despised and rejected more than our Savior was that day he was declared a criminal when in fact he was sinless he was accused of crimes he did not commit he was beaten and pummeled. He was mocked and injured with a crown of thorns that was thrust on his head. He bore his cross on his shoulder. He had to carry that cross, the cross beam. And as he got there, exhausted and wounded. And then, even before that, they did the Roman scourging on him, where they took the cat of nine tails and whipped the daylights out of our Lord Jesus Christ and shredded his bag and tore the, tore the backside out and, and, and just blood everywhere on, on our Lord Jesus Christ here. And then they nailed him to the cross and his blood that was coming out. And there on the cross, sin long, grueling, enduring hours. Our Savior in that hot sun with barely, maybe just a loincloth covering His private. Listen, our Savior was hanging there, suspended between earth and heaven. He hung there, suffering for you and I. This was God who could have came off the cross. This was God who could have stopped all that from happening, but He did not. This was our God who even cried out as the sun darkened. And He said, My God, my God, why has Thou forsaken me? This is our Savior whose blood was coagulating. This was our Savior who was affixed on that cross. It was becoming increasingly more difficult for him to breathe. The oxygen supply was being cut off. His blood was coagulating. Drops of blood were coming out in profuse amounts out of those wounds that he had and then started to coagulate over time. This was our Savior feeling the grueling, the pain going through his body and every time as he pushed himself up he could feel his, the nerves just piercing with pain and flaming with pain. This was our Savior who had the immense pressure and suffering of the severe breathing restrictions and co- died Die. Listen. this morning. Our Savior suffered on the cross for you and I. But it wasn't finished there. There was the scattering and there was the scorning and there was the suffering. There was the sacrifice. You said, well, what a martyr. No, it was not just a martyr. He, sacri- he died as a sacrifice for you. Now, listen, what's a sacrifice? A sacrifice is when you give up something important to you. so that a good cause can be accomplished. Sacrifice costs. A sacrifice means you get nothing in return. You believe that what you're sacrificing for is a good cause. May I testify this morning, our God thinks it's a good cause that Jesus died for your sins and mine. Jesus sacrifice. He sacrificed his life. Greater love is no man than this than a man laid down his life for his friend. The greatest sacrifice was our Savior dying on the cross for you and I. We get to Isaiah 53. Isaiah describes it this way. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him by stripes and Isaiah's talking about the scourging on his back by stripes we are healed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ of his sinless life was the payment price for every sin money cannot buy our way into heaven baptism cannot get us into heaven being religious will not get us into heaven good works cannot get us into heaven Only the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross could pay in full your sin debt and mine completely. That's what Jesus did there. Christ died for us. He was the just dying for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of all the world. Listen, watch this. On the day of redemption, there was a scattering. and On the day of redemption, there was a scorning. And on the day of redemption, there was a suffering. And on that day of redemption, there was a sacrifice. But I want to tell you this morning, on the day of redemption, there was a salvation for every sinner. Amen? Salvation is available for every person. On that one day. On that one day. We don't need to reenact the death of Jesus Christ. He took care of that. That one day. Jesus died for our sins. It was paid in full. When he said, it is finished. He consummated all that God wanted done. Listen to this. That one day gives every sinner salvation. Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The grace of God was exhibited and shown in full when Jesus Christ died for our sins. Ephesians 2.89. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. Let today be the day of your salvation. Let the day, today be the day that redemption is fulfilled in your life. You see, redemption means this. Redemption means to buy something back. And the picture there is of you and I as a slave with no ownership of our own lives. And on that slave market, the highest bidder wins that slave. We are servants to sin and slaves to sin. Jesus, when he died for our sins, he bought us out of the, of the slave market of sin. He bought us out and gave us a new life. Never more to go back to that former life. And notice in verse 20 something very interesting. In Isaiah ten twenty says something very interesting. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. You know, what, it's, what that reminds me of as we look at this passage, that there, is a, there may be a time that we're, perhaps we trusted in good works, and there may be a time we trusted in our religion, and there may, must be, may have been a time we trusted in our baptism, and there may have been a time we trusted in our memorization of a creed of some kind. But listen, when we realize we're a sinner, and we realize that Jesus Christ paid our sin debt in full. We don't have to stay upon that which cannot save us. We can stay upon the Lord who does save us, amen? We can stay upon him whose word is true. We can stay upon him who is truthful and real. We can stay upon the fact that Jesus died for our sins and offers us the gift of eternal life. One day, there's a reckoning. One day, a redemption. And as we close this morning, would you notice one day, the rapture. The word rapture is not a word found in the Bible. It is a word, when we look at the English dictionary, it describes a state of ecstasy, of rejoicing, of celebration. It's a word that describes the greatest happiness a person could have. And the word rapture was used to describe a point of time that we as Christians are waiting for. When Jesus will descend from heaven, but his feet will not touch this earth. When our Savior will descend from heaven, and there will be the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, which will announce Jesus descending. We will hear it. I said we will hear it. Amen? And we're going to hear this sound. And the sound will be the voice of our Lord saying, Come up hither. He's calling us home. The rapture is that day on the prophetic calendar when Jesus comes for his church, for every saved individual to take us up, to be with him in heaven forever and forever. The Bible describes it to us in many verses of Scripture. You find it in First Thessalonians chapter 4. But our Lord will descend from heaven and take his bride, the church, all of us who have placed our faith and trust in him as Savior, home to heaven. In Romans 13, it describes what we call the rapture. And I want to give you some thoughts as we close this morning. Because this will happen not just even in one day. It will happen in a moment. It will happen in a moment on that one day. Romans 13 says this to you and I in verses 11 and 12. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Listen to what he said. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us de- therefore cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the arm of light. Now we know there's a day of reckoning for the unsaved. And we know there was the day of redemption when Jesus died for our sins. But the day of rapture is a day that as believers, we should be looking forward to with a great anticipation. It's when our bridegroom comes for the bride, and we're the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. He's coming to take us to be with him forever and forever. Notice in Romans 13, verse 12, that day is, it will, it is soon. That day is very soon. That one day will be soon. He says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. When Paul wrote that, he believed that the imminency of Jesus' coming would be very soon. We believe that Jesus could come at any time. It will be very soon. We believe as the, the time clock of prophecies unfolding even right now in our world, we believe that everything is pointing to the coming of our Lord. Now, can I put a date on it? No. Can I tell you what happened my generation? I can't tell you that, but I, I, I really believe with all my heart that, it, that I do pray that God, that Jesus would come during my generation. I look forward to that. I'd love, to, I'd love for it to happen during our generation, that we'd be raptured. That would be, that would be great, Amen. First thing I'm going to do is grab my wife and grab a little Evie and we're going up together. Amen. And uh, we're going to go in the Lord call, beat all of you up there. Amen. You know, and uh, we're just going to ask God that they know that during our time, but you know, it's going to be soon. We can't put a timeline on. We can't be like the false prophets who said, well, it's going to happen on October 29th or something like we, that. We can't put a date on that, but we know it's going to be soon. We know it's going to be Swift. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment when the twinking of an eye as the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorrupt and, and we shall be changed. Listen, he says the twinking of an eye. Hey, listen, the twinkling of an eye is a fraction of a second. It's not the blinking of an eye. It's the twinkle of an eye. It's quick. It's going to happen. And listen, when it happens, people in all the earth, are going to say, where'd they go? What happened there? Hey, it's going to be a time that's soon. It's going to be a time that's, it's a time that's going to be surprising to many people. He said in First Thessalonians 5, 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Man, a thief comes to your home at night. Man, you feel violated. A thief comes to your home at night. It's a big surprise. Can you imagine how many God's people are going to be surprised when Jesus comes? Lord, it's so soon. Listen, it's not too soon. I want him to come now. Amen you imagine how many unsaved people who put off getting saved, and put off getting saved, and put off getting saved? are gonna be surprised that the saved people they knew in their lives are gone. It'll be soon. It'll be swift. It'll be surprising. Listen, John 14, it's for the saved. Only the saved are gonna be raptured. Say amen. amen. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And that's me. If there's ever a reason to find out if you're saved, you need to get saved now. But here's what Jesus told those distraught disciples. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Hey, listen, if you've recently trusted Jesus Christ, your Savior, Jesus started preparing a mansion for you in heaven. Amen? I mean, I don't know about you. I can hear the sawing. I can hear the nails. I can hear the hammering. I can hear all the happening. But listen, when I breathe my last breath, or when Jesus comes for me, the construction's done. The house is ready for occupancy. Amen? And he said in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's for the saved. It'll be soon, it'll be swift, it'll be a surprise. It's for the saved. And notice John 14:1, it is certain. One day, I will come again. One day, a reckoning. One day, his redemption. One day, the rapture. Go back to Isaiah 10 and look at verse 20. We're done. Our Lord foretold of days that would happen to Jerusalem and Judah. Our Lord foretold that in one day, he'd catch up with the king of Assyria. He told them in verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day, That the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob show no more again, and I love that phrase, no more again. Amen. Stay upon him that smote them. Before I got saved, I worried and was anxious. How do I know for sure I'm going to go to heaven? How many good works does it take to get to heaven? And where's the standard? Who's to say my works are less than someone else's or more than someone else's? I'm so glad it's not by works, it's by grace. Amen. Grace is at the foot of the cross. For by grace are you saved through faith. And would you notice, verse 20, what a wonderful thought. No more again shall they stay upon him that smote them. Listen, when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, no more again you have to trust those things. Well, that that will not help you because he said here, but you shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and truth. There's some great thoughts for us there. May I encourage you as we close this morning, stay upon the Lord. Stay upon his word. Stay upon his church. Stay upon the Lord for your strength. Stay upon the Lord for every step you take. Stay upon the Lord for your marriage. Stay upon the Lord in days of declining health. Stay upon the Lord for your comfort. Stay upon the Lord for fruitfulness in your life. Stay upon the Lord in serving Him. Stay upon the Lord. He's coming soon. Stay upon the Lord for your salvation. And maybe today will be the one day that will change your life. Maybe today is that one day where you're born again into the family of God. Maybe today is that one day where your sins can be covered in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. And maybe today, this is today you're going to take a step forward for Christ and say, I'm going to live for the Lord. And I'm going to, I'm going to take the next step of joining the church. And I'm going to take the next step of finding the Lord in scriptural baptism, of identifying with the Lord in his death, prayer, and resurrection. It might be today that you're going to decide, I'm not going to live in the shadow of trusting in my finances, trusting in my job, trusting in my career, trusting in this person, that person. I'm going to trust in the ever-living God. Let today be the day that you're stayed upon Jehovah. You're stayed upon his word and realizing he will never fail you. He will he will never forsake you. He will never leave you. And you say, why? Because he loves you and he's there for you and he's always there for you. You can stay upon Jehovah because he's there for you today. This morning, one day, will your one day be a day of reckoning? Will today be the day of your redemption? And are you ready for the one day of the rapture when the Lord comes for his church?